What a lovely song. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. Well, again, welcome to you. If you are visiting today for the first time, we're really glad that you're here. Uh, And if you're just joining us today, we are toward the end of a sermon series that we've been preaching from the book of Revelation of all things. And today is the 12th sermon in 14 total sermons. And today we're uh, in chapter 20. And we've been learning some interesting things in this book, things that are worth repeating as we get into our text today. There are a couple key points to keep in mind as you read the book of Revelation, and I've got them up here on the screen. There are four of them. First of all, remember that the book of Revelation is a unique genre. That's a type of literature. It's an apocalypse. An apocalypse literally means an unveiling. It's as though we could throw the curtain back, if you will, and see things we wouldn't be able to see otherwise. An apocalypse uses imagery that is often disturbing and highly symbolic. Now, as an apocalypse, point number two is that it is to be read symbolically and not literally. So often we think that the Bible, in order to be taken seriously, needs to be read literally. It does not. You can read it faithfully, symbolically, and derive the proper understanding. So it's to be read symbolically and not literally. Third point, the book of Revelation is circular meaning it tells a similar theme and similar stories, and it's like an ascending spiral that goes up to the top, to the apex, the pinnacle. And then that's what we're reaching this week. Lastly, point four, the historic context. It's one of emperor worship. There was, in the late first century, an emperor of the Roman Empire named Domitian. Domitian required that his subjects throughout the Roman Empire worship him as Lord and God. And this created a problem for the Christians, for they worshiped Jesus as Lord and God. And so there was persecution of the Christians, and very often they were killed for their faith. So bear in mind those four things as you read the book of Revelation and as we get started in today's text. Today we're in Revelation 20. Leon Morris, in his commentary, said this about Revelation 20. It is one of the most difficult parts of the entire book. Craig Keener, in his commentary on our chapter today, said that it is the most debated chapter in this book. So in other words, it's the most difficult part, and it's the most debated part, and I get to preach on it. Thank you very much. I will follow what Leon Morris said also in his commentary. He said that we need to approach this chapter with humility and charity. Humility, because we don't always understand all that this chapter means. And charity, because Christians, believe it or not, have divided and been very mean to each other about what to believe in this chapter. So let's keep that in mind. My cue will be taken from a preacher who influenced me greatly starting in college, Earl Palmer, the First Presbyterian Church of Berkeley. And Earl said that when you get into a difficult Bible text, it is better to be lean than luxurious. In other words, your interpretation should should focus on the simple, straightforward matters instead of being too fanciful and allegorical. Are you with me? Let's go to Revelation 20 and look at it. John writes, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him 
to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we do come with humility to this text because we don't understand it fully. We claim a great deal of ignorance and we ask that you would shed light on it and make it clear to us at least what you would have us do in response to it. And we come with charity, knowing that others may see it differently than we do. and pray that there would be a breadth and wideness of mercy for all of us. So guide us now, we pray in your name. Amen. What do you do with a chapter like this? Uh, and how do you try to make sense of it and be helpful with it? Uh, what I want to do is I want to teach on it for an hour or more. I want to do a whole series on it, frankly, but we don't have that kind of time. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you a bare-bones outline. And if you're a note-taker, great, but if you're not, I'm going to send out an email tomorrow, and my notes, the slides, will be on that, so you can check it out then. But let's see if we can divide the text into three parts and start with the first one. Chapter 20, verses 1 to 6, the thousand years. Surely you notice that in the first six verses of this passage today, the term a thousand years was referenced five different times. This is a reference to the millennium. The millennium is a Latin translation of the thousand years. And Christians, believe it or not, have divided sometimes very vocally and angrily, over their views on the millennium. So what I thought I would do is share with you just the three main viewpoints on the millennium. So here they are, the three main viewpoints. 
The first is post-millennialism. It believes that Christians are living post-millennium. In other words, when Jesus came the first time, he instituted his kingdom reign, and we live after that. The millennium is advancing, and we have a role to play by our preaching, by our missionary service, by our service to others, by acts of justice like, for example, abolition, abolition of slavery. These are ways we advance Christ's kingdom. That's post-millennialism. Post-millennialism was the number one viewpoint of the end times in evangelical Christianity in this country in the 19th century. And so believe it or not, that was a big deal for many, many Christians here in America. Postmillennialism takes a spiritual reading of the text, and it tends to be really optimistic. In other words, we can advance things by, by serving Jesus. That's postmillennialism. Premillennialism, on the other hand, is very different. It believes that after Christ's second coming, that when he comes again, then the millennium will be instituted, and then Christians will reign. Jesus will establish a specific thousand-year literal reign on earth. Premillennialism has a literal reading. Now, postmillennialism was fairly optimistic. Premillennialism is just the opposite. It's very pessimistic. Things are going to go to hell in a handbasket until Jesus comes again. So you can see it sets up a very different way of looking at the end times. Finally, there's that third view called amillennialism. In other words, non-millennialism. It doesn't believe literally in a thousand-year reign. The thousand-year reign is figurative of the present church age until Jesus comes back. If postmillennialism was optimistic and a spiritual reading, and premillennialism was a literal reading that was pessimistic, then amillennialism is a symbolic reading, and frankly, I think it's realistic. By the way, amillennialism tends to be the viewpoint of Presbyterian preachers. Presbyterians tend to view that language of the book of Revelation is symbolic and figurative. And so many of the sermons you've been hearing in this pulpit have been reflecting that viewpoint. Are you with me? Let's keep going. So the first thing is we have three views of the millennium. Then we get something else. That's this point B here. Satan. Satan is completely controlled. Did you notice that? Did you see what happened in the opening verses? First of all, John says, an angel comes out with a key and a chain. He doesn't even tell you who the angel is. It doesn't even matter because all it's going to take to defeat evil is an angel. An angel, not even named, will take uh, the great serpent, the great dragon, the devil, and Satan and bind him. And then you get these verses where you hear that he was bound, he was thrown, he was locked, it was, he was sealed, he was kept. Satan is completely controlled. Now, some of you are saying, Satan, are you kidding me? Really? We still have to believe in the devil, that guy with red tights and horns on his head and a pitchfork and cloven hooves? Are you kidding me? Do we still believe in him? Well, Billy Graham did. Billy Graham, when he was asked if he believed in the devil, he said he did for three main reasons. He said, I believe in the devil because the Bible plainly says he exists. In fact, if you go through the Old and New Testaments, you see a developing understanding of personal demonic evil that gets its clearest expression in the ministry of Jesus. Jesus dealt with the devil personally and taught about him very clearly. So that's the first reason. The Bible teaches it. 
Then Billy Graham said, a second reason was that I see his work everywhere, right? And that's pretty easy to establish. We see evil all around us and maybe even in increasing measure today. And then Billy Graham said a third thing. He said, I believe in the devil because great scholars recognized his existence. One of those great scholars was C.S. Lewis. He wrote in his book, The Screwtape Letters, this preface. Anybody here read The Screwtape Letters? Look at all those people. That's great. If you haven't read The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, you need to do it. It's a fanciful sort of story of a senior devil coaching a junior devil on how to tempt a Christian. It's brilliant. And Lewis wrote this preface. In this preface, he said uh, to this book, this book was the hardest book he'd ever written. Here's what he said about demonic evil. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, the human race, can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. Which of those two poles characterizes your view of demonic evil? Dismissing it as though it doesn't exist? Or perhaps being overly interested or overly concerned about it? Or are you somewhere in the middle, which is probably the best place to be? I um, went to Germany with Rupali when we were early on in our marriage, 1990. We got to visit the eastern lands of Germany, which had been closed because of communism for many years, and we visited this particular castle. This is the Wartburg. It's in Eisenach in East Germany, which had been opened up in 1989. We saw it in 1990. We were on the Luther Trail, and we saw where Luther had uh, done so much for the Protestant uh, Reformation in the 16th century. Luther had just been condemned by the Pope, and the Pope had a death sentence on him, and so he fled, he, he grew out his beard, he put on different clothing, he took an alien, alias, and he hid out in the Wartburg Castle. And there in this very room, the Luther room, he translated the New Testament from Greek, its original language, into German. And by doing that, he had united Germany in a common language. They had no common German language at that point. But Luther was sorely oppressed by demonic evil, and in this very room, it was said that he took his inkwell when the devil visited him and threw it at him. And you can still see the outline of the ink on the side of the wall. Luther knew demonic evil. He wrestled with it. And after all, it was Luther who penned the words to the great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, that verse that says this, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Luther knew personal demonic evil, and he was confident that Jesus Christ could defeat it. I didn't know a lot about demonic evil until... Early in our marriage, Rupali and I visited India, where she was born. We went to Kolkata, Calcutta. And there we, somewhat ignorantly, thought it would be good to visit the patron saint of, or patron goddess of Calcutta, Kali, her temple. And so we went with Rupali's aunt, a very devout Hindu, 
and we went down to the Ganges where the temple was, completely ignorant, completely just open-minded. And when the gates opened and when all the worshipers could come with their presentation of their offerings, they swept us down, down into the base of the shrine, down these marble steps, and there we saw bloodthirsty Kali herself with blood coming out of her mouth and with many arms and visceral evil came over us. And we literally recoiled and we found ourselves backing up the steps, backing away from the crowds because we had to get out of there. There was no explanation other than that it was personal demonic evil. And we sensed that in various points during that trip. Now, lest we think that demonic evil only shows up in developing countries, we need to be aware that Satan takes on different shapes in different contexts. And here in the affluent West, very often Satan's best disguises are in our structures, our greed, our materialism, some of the systems by which we operate, our pornography, the abuse of the poor, unrighteousness to those refugees on our border, or disregard for life in the womb. We have institutionalized many of our responses to evil, and Satan is alive and at work nonetheless. I don't know if you saw this this past week, but on Thursday, Pat Conroy, the House chaplain of the House of Representatives, opened their session Thursday with a prayer. And Pat Conroy's prayer was amazing. It's gone viral. I'll read portions of it. This happened Thursday in the House of Representatives. He prayed. This has been a difficult and contentious week in which darker spirits seem to have been at play in the people's house. In your most holy name, I now cast out all spirits of darkness from this chamber, spirits not from you. Anoint your servants here in the house with a healing balm to comfort and renew the souls of all in this assembly. May your spirit of wisdom and patience descend upon all so that any spirit of darkness may have no place in our midst. Can you believe that? That was a prayer in the House of Representatives just a few days ago. Demonic evil is alive and well, and we need to be guarded against it. But remember, Satan is completely controlled. That's our second point. Let's move on to the third point in this first section, and that's this, point C. Christians reign with Christ. Now, we may debate the length of their reign, the place of their reign, or who they're reigning with, but what is clear is that Christians reign with Christ. And we in the amillennial tradition, our Presbyterian tradition, well, we tend to view this spiritually. And why do we do that? Because of Ephesians 2, verses 5 and 6. There we read this. Notice the tenses there in the past. God made us, you and me, who trust in Jesus, God made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ, past tense, and seated us with him, past tense, in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In other words, if you trust in Jesus Christ, you are alive, spiritually speaking. You reign with him. And it may be a thousand years and it might not, but we tend to view this spiritually. Christians reign with Christ. So what do we make of this very first section? Well, I would summarize it this way. The thousand years challenges, challenge us to live boldly. Friends, go on the offensive. 
Don't be afraid to pray. Don't be afraid to pray boldly to God against evil like Pat Conroy prayed. That should be our prayer. Don't be afraid to witness and to serve. Don't be afraid to go out in mission and to take a risk for Jesus. The times demand it. Live boldly. Now we're ready for the second section, verses 7 through 10, the final battle. There we see that Satan is unleashed for a brief period of time, that Satan's deceptions are renewed. And then as they are renewed, point B, the battle ensues, and we learn that it's a battle that isn't. A battle that isn't. That's point B. We see a battle beginning, and then we see... uh, that in just a moment, fire comes from God and devours them instantly. Lest we think that there is somehow an even battle between good and evil, there isn't. The battle isn't. God is victorious and sovereign. And then this last point, point C, evil is defeated forever. Did you see that? Evil and all its cohorts are thrown into the lake of fire to burn forever and ever. And however we read that, one thing is clear, Evil is defeated forever and ever. Isn't that a great thought? Some of us struggle with various forms of evil. It could be temptation. It could be what we see in our world. It could be chronic illness. It could be death, deep depression or sadness. Evil afflicts us. And oh, how we long for a release from that. Well, a time is coming and it will be here where evil will be defeated forever. Hallelujah. Such a good hopeful thing. And that leads us to our summary of this next section, point, uh, the second number. The final battle challenges us to live hopefully. Don't be discouraged. Evil will not win. Evil does not have the final say. God does. And so we can live not only boldly, but also hopefully. Now we're ready for the third and last section, the last judgment. It's clear from this section that all will be judged. We're told that great and small will stand before the great white throne. We're told that the buried and the unburied, the people who've been buried in the ground, the people who've died at sea, all will be assembled before the judgment throne. And um, that's why we say in the Apostles' Creed, so many of us, this simple phrase. And if you want to be lean rather than luxurious, here it is. You want to know what the book of Revelation is? It's right here in a phrase. From thence, from heaven, Jesus shall come to judge the quick and the dead. And some of you are saying, well, who are the quick? Are those people who are really fast? No. I didn't know what quick meant until I, as an English major, studied uh, Old English at Berkeley. And I learned that quick, our language for quick in modern English is from Old English, which is a word quikre. Quikre means living. Have you ever heard about the quick in your nail? The quick is the living part in your nail. And if you tear your nail to the quick, it hurts a lot. So it says that Jesus is going to come to judge everybody, those who are living when he returns and those who have died. All will be judged. And then we see something very, very interesting. We see that judgment will be by works. But judgment will be by works. We see that a couple times in our text where all were judged according to their deeds. And some of you are wondering, I thought that our deeds could never save us. I thought that our deeds were, like Isaiah says, filthy rags. And that we we weren't going to be judged by our deeds. We would be judged by grace, by God's mercy. 
Well, remember the books. There are two sets of books in this text. There are the books of deeds, and there's the book of life. The book of deeds has the deeds of human beings in it, but the people who are saved are saved because their names are in the book of life. And so what this does is it shows that judgment will be by works, but a third point, a third point, salvation will be by grace. Salvation will be by grace. Remember again the two books. There's the book of merit, or the books of merit, the things we do. And over here there's the book of mercy, the book of life. That's where grace comes in. I know this because of Ephesians chapter 2. Let's take a look at it. This is such an important set of verses. Look at grace and look at works and look how they operate together. Let me read it. For it is by grace. What is grace? I like to say that grace, G-R-A-C-E, is God's riches at Christ's expense. All of God's riches are given to us at Christ's expense, not at our own. That's grace. Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. In other words, trusting God. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Note this next verse. Not by works, so that no one can boast. But then Paul puts a little interesting twist in verse 10. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. There they are, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Salvation is by grace through faith. Salvation is Jesus' work on the cross, which we receive by simply trusting in him, saying yes to him. Then we're saved, but it doesn't stop there. Then we go out and we live differently. We do good works out of gratitude to God, And so good works are still recorded, but they don't save us. We're saved by grace. Does that make sense? Okay. So what does that mean for us as we try to put this all together? Point three here. If the first section was to live boldly, and the second section was to live hopefully, well, then this third section means we are to live faithfully. To live full of faith in Jesus and what he's done. And then to live faithfully in living out his life in the context of our daily lives. To live boldly, to live hopefully, to live faithfully. I'm going to put up a picture here. See if you might know who this is. You probably don't. I didn't. But this is Alfred Nobel. Alfred Nobel, who was the late 19th century Swedish chemist. And in their book... Their book, uh, Is It Real When It Doesn't Work? Doug Murren and Barb Shuren Tool told a true story about Alfred Nobel. Apparently, Alfred Nobel woke up one morning, opened his newspaper, and read his own obituary. Can you imagine that? And this is what he read. Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite, who died yesterday, devised a way for more people to be killed in a war than ever before, and he died a very rich man. He read his own obituary. And this actually wasn't, of course, referring to to his death because it wasn't Alfred Nobel who had died. It was his brother, apparently. But the newspaper got him mixed up. But do you see what happened? Nobel read his own obituary and then he vowed to live his life differently. 
He wanted them to be not known for developing weapons to kill people and getting rich off of them. He instead wanted to develop something else, and so he developed the Nobel Prize, especially the Nobel Peace Prize. These are prizes we give, or the Swedish government gives every year to those who are building up human life, saving life rather than killing it. And that's what Nobel was finally known for, was that, saving life. But you see what happened? Nobel saw his obituary and had a chance to look forward and make changes in his life in the present. I think that's what we've got today. We've had the chance to look forward to the end of all time and to see the final judgment, the last judgment, and then to review our lives and to think where we stand with God. Not that any of us should run out and become anxious and try to do good deeds to save ourselves. No. But there might be someone in here who hasn't yet trusted Jesus. There might be someone in here who has not given their life over to Christ and said yes to His grace, yes to His mercy, and then sought to follow Him as a Christian. Is that you? You got dragged to church today and you didn't even know why? Could God maybe be giving you an opportunity to turn your life around? I think the text gives us that opportunity. Let's pray together. Lord, I don't know if there's someone here who needs this message in any particular way, but if so, I and we pray for them. Pray that you'd grant them the courage to take this opportunity to say yes to you and to experience new life and the confidence that when the day comes, they will stand before you with gratitude and not with fear because you have saved them. And for all of us, Lord, help us to live out of a confidence of spirit that would Allow us to live faithfully in the present. Bless us, O God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.